keep justice. Do righteousness. For my salvation is about to come. And my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this. And the son of man who lays hold on it. Who keeps from defiling the Sabbath. And keeps his hand from doing any evil. Do not let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord has utterly separated me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, Here I am, a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant. Even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Also the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve Him and to love the name of the Lord, to be His servants. Everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast My covenant, even them I will bring to My holy mountain and make them joyful in My house of Prayer, Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, says, Yet I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. All you beasts of the field come to devour. All you beasts in the forest, his watchmen are blind. They are all ignorant. They are all dumb dogs. They cannot bark, sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. Yes, they are greedy dogs which never have enough. And they are shepherds who cannot understand. They all look to their own way, everyone for his own gain, from his own territory. Come, one says, I will bring wine and we will fill ourselves with intoxicating drink. Tomorrow will be as today and much more abundant. In chapter 55 and in chapter 56, the Lord issues a series of invitations. The first is the invitation to come to the Lord in chapter 55. Verses 1 through 5. Then there's an invitation to seek the Lord in chapter 55, verses 6 through 13. And now, now there is an invitation. Really, it's more than an invitation. It is a command to live righteously, to do justice, to worship the Lord in verses 1 through 8. And so the chapter begins with the servant's ministry to the lost in verses 1 through 8. And and it will end with a message to the leaders, to idolaters, to the prideful, to the greedy in verse 9 all the way to the end of the chapter and then all of of chapter 57 all the way to chapter 21. Isaiah has urged the people to come to the Lord, to seek the Lord, To diligently search. Here is the idea. It is to aggressively plead and cry out. The point that that Isaiah is saying is, if ever there was a time, now is the time. Just like it says in the New Testament, now is the time of salvation. Today is the day of the Lord. Today is the day 
to turn your thoughts and to turn your lips and to turn your feet in the direction of justice and righteousness and holiness and friendship and relationship with the, with the Lord God of heaven so that you would experience joy. And he also warns the people, don't wait. Don't wait. Don't wait too long. Don't fail to seek the Lord while he is near. So Isaiah offers grace to Israel's wicked leaders. But he also offers salvation to the isolated and the separated, to those who have been drawn outside the circle of acceptance and friendship and relationship. And so Isaiah begins to put together a list of God's dealings with certain individuals. The Old Testament assembly of the righteous included native-born Israelis and the children of, of Jacob and to foreigners and strangers. If you read carefully in the book of Deuteronomy, there is a list that begins. I was reading it this morning from chapter 23, 24, 25, 26. The people who could, who could come and the people who couldn't come. In, in Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, it says, He who is emasculated by crushing or mutilation shall not enter into the assembly of the Lord. The idea was that the eunuch, the person who was single by choice, by birth, by accident, by circumstance, would not be allowed in the assembly of the Lord. There were certain people who had molested and afflicted Israel while she was wandering in the wilderness, and the Lord said they wouldn't be allowed to come into the assembly. Obedience brings its own rewards, but... Fortunately, those people who were drawn outside the circle wouldn't be drawn outside the circle forever. Who will the Lord save? Who will he save? Those who do what is revealed and right, it says in verses 1 and 2. The Lord is willing to save the goim, the Gentiles. They're not to be looked on as second-class citizens or an afterthought in God's plan of redemption. When the Gentiles, that is the nations, turn to God's Messiah, the servant of the Lord, they're to be accepted. And remember, the biggest problem in the New Testament, after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, and the Jewish people began to proclaim the gospel, the biggest problem problem they faced was at what point will they reach the Gentiles with the gospel of Jesus Christ and the second big deal was does a Gentile have to become a Jew in order to have a right relationship with God and of course you remember the vision that Peter receives of the satanic sushi sheet that comes down from heaven and a voice says rise up Peter rise and eat and he says I'm a good Jew I've kept kosher and clean my whole life. These lips have never tasted unclean meats. And remember what the Lord said. Don't you call unclean what I have made clean. The satanic sushi sheet was a, a type and a picture, a symbol of, well, you and me. Most of you are Gentiles by birth. Excluded, Paul wrote, from the promises of God. But now, you who have been, were once excluded, have been included. You who were outside the circle of God's promises and grace have been called to be a part of what God is doing. And so, you can experience God's joy in God's temple, the temple of the Lord, the house of worship. 
And so we see, look what it says in verse 1. Thus says the Lord, keep justice, do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. It comes with an admonition, the servant's ministry. It, It comes with a thus saith the Lord. Keep justice. And when I was preparing this message and I was thinking about what it says, it occurred to me that some of you don't have any idea what the word justice means. Justice means equity, fairness. From a biblical standpoint, if I were to try and take this word justice and boil it down to its most simple meaning, The word justice means to render that which is due to the person. The word justice means to give to each and every person exactly what they deserve. I want you to think about that for just a moment. If justice means to give to each and every person exactly what they deserve, what does God deserve? He deserves worship. He deserves admiration. He deserves love. He deserves everything because he is the origin, the author of all things. Just like what you are worshiping and you are singing about, he deserves all things, all honor, all majesty is due to God. You are exercising in an unjust fashion when you withhold from God all that he deserves. Now, having just given you a brief description of what God deserves, what do you deserve? You're right, hell. You deserve to be punished for your sin. You deserve to go to a Christless eternity apart from God because of your wicked disobedience. But what has God given you? Grace and mercy and love. He has given you the most amazing opportunity, and that's to experience friendship and relationship with the living Lord through Jesus Christ. And then you have this other great opportunity. Remember, if justice means giving to each and every person that which they deserve, it also becomes an explanation of how we're to treat one another. We're to act with dignity and propriety and respect. No wonder the Old Testament says, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. It becomes an edict and an admonition to exercise courtesy and respect and dignity towards each and every person that you come in contact with. It says, keep justice, do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come. Look what the admonition is. I want you to act with justice, and I want you to do that which is righteous. Why? Because my salvation is about to come. My righteousness is about to be revealed. We're urged to exercise. And again, the plea comes to treat people fairly. Always do what is right. And and you should ask yourself at this point, even at the opening verse, why is the Lord so adamant that we're to live just and holy lives? Why is this such a big deal? Remember, we live in a culture and a society, and sometimes we live in a Christian culture and a society that takes a little too much liberty with grace. 
We abuse grace. We sometimes will whisper to ourselves, well, it doesn't really matter because God will forgive me for this. And you know what? God is gracious. And the Bible does say He will forgive you. But here He says, Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness. Why? Because the future is coming. Part of what the Lord is doing is He's appealing to you and He's he's appealing to the power of the future. Justice is coming. Righteousness is coming. Salvation is coming. And because justice, righteousness, salvation is coming in the person of the suffering servant who is the Messiah, I need you to love today and act justly today. I need you to be the man and the woman that you can be today so that you can exercise a godly influence on all the people that God has placed into your life. Why? Because salvation is coming. Isaiah sees the future. He knows that the redemption is near. The time of captivity would fast come to a a close and they would return to the land of promise. And as they return to the land of promise, they would need to be the men and women that God had called them to to be. And when the final day of redemption would come, by the way, only a few would leave Babylon. When, when they find themselves by the, by the river Euphrates, after they've suffered there for 70 years, the Messiah, by God's grace and mercy, will move upon the, the Persian king's heart to release the children of Israel. They will have grown strong in Babylon. But a spirit of unbelief would grip their hearts. And when it came time for the redemption to take place, many of them, filled with a heart of unbelief, were unwilling to leave their home. They were unwilling to leave their livelihood. They were unwilling to leave their investments. They were unwilling to to leave those things. Wealth had produced security, and security had brought pleasure and comfort and recreation. And when it came time to go back, most of them didn't. Most of them stayed in Babylon. And it becomes a type and a picture of the Christian, the carnal Christian, who becomes so in love with this world and so in love with entertainment tonight and so in love with TV and so in love with radio and so in love with this world and all that this world has to offer. They find themselves saying weird and stupid things. I I hope Jesus doesn't come back. Well, why? Well, I haven't had a time to enjoy this and to enjoy that and to enjoy this and enjoy that. And don't get me wrong. There's a big world out there and there's lots of things that we can enjoy, but there's, there's something missing. There's something missing. God's people desperately needed to turn their lives around. They needed to repent. They needed to embrace righteousness. They needed to respond to the invitation. But most wouldn't. By the way, do you remember right before the public ministry of Jesus, there was a man who appeared on the scene, John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, he came and he called the people to repentance and righteousness. And you'll remember if you've read either Matthew or Mark or Luke, that when when the people would come to John the Baptist because he, he had a message of repentance and righteousness, tax collectors, soldiers, and in John's gospel, they come to, to John the Baptist after he preaches, and, and the tax collector says, well, what should I do? And John says, don't take more than what you're supposed to take. And the soldier said, what should I do? 
And John said, don't take bribes. Act righteously. Do your job. Be content with your pay. If you read Ezra and Nehemiah and Haggai and Malachi, in every generation, the Lord would send a spokesperson. And the spokesperson would say, make sure you have a right heart. Make sure you're not harboring sin. Make sure that you don't have an unhealthy preoccupation with things that are wicked and wrong. And make sure, make sure that you're honoring and serving and loving the Lord. As a matter of fact, Paul wrote in Titus chapter 2, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Isaiah invites us to consider the power of the future. Ray Ortland writes, The future strengthens us to live well today. In Isaiah 56, verse 1, it sets the tone for the rest of the book. God is asking, have you discovered the power of the future? The fullness of salvation is on its way to you. Nothing can stop it. I want you to live now on that basis. You are the ones through whom my coming kingdom is to be felt today. You are a living sign of the future. You are a prophetic presence in the world. Live like it, unquote. That's part of the message here. When Isaiah is writing this wor- these words, the captivity and the liberation are hundreds of years in the future. But guess what? Jesus is coming, huh? The Messiah will come. And then the Messiah does come. And the whole world is different. You see, you have an extraordinary, extraordinary benefit. You live in a time, in a circumstance, when you look back on the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, the spreading of the gospel, the proliferation of hope. But I guarantee you this. I guarantee you it. One-third of the prophecies in the Bible are focused on the first coming of Jesus Christ. You know what two-thirds of the prophecies are focused on? The second coming of Jesus Christ. Isaiah is inviting you to consider the future. Isaiah is asking you to think about your future. Isaiah is inviting you to think about your future in relationship to God and Christ. And he's asking you, I need you to live like godly men and women in this particular generation because the future is coming. Tomorrow will be here soon. And next week and next month and next year. And as the future unfolds, God has a plan and a purpose, not just for my future, but for your future. God sees your future. He sees your ministry. He sees the hope and the encouragement and the love and the grace and the mercy. He he sees how He's going to use you to unfold the plans and the purposes that He has for you tomorrow. And so you know what He needs you to do? He needs you to live like a Christian today. So that you'll love like a Christian tomorrow. And in verse 2, look what it says. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who lays hold on it who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. So he says, look, keep the Sabbath. 
Don't defile yourself. Don't neglect the Lord's commands by working when you should be worshiping and entering into God's rest. Now, remember, 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 when Isaiah wrote these words, the temple is still intact. But when Babylon comes and destroys the temple, and destroys Jerusalem, and destroys Judah, the focal point of worship will be gone. So in captivity, are they going to still act like Jews? Are they going to pray like Jews? Are they going to observe the commandments of God? And see, this is interesting from our standpoint. Because, again, you might think, well, you know, if I'm here, I, I go to church on Wednesday. If I'm here, I'll go to church on Sunday. But what if you awaken to a world tomorrow where there are no church buildings? What are you going to do when I am gone? By the way, I will be gone one day. One day, I will either be dropped dead or I will be taken in a rapture. There's going to come a time when I won't be here. There might even become a time when a visible leadership of Christianity isn't available to you. And so what are you going to be when the lights are gone and there's no church to go to? What kind of a heart and what kind of a witness are you going to embrace? And look what it says. Look closely at the verse in verse 2. The Sabbath isn't keeping your hands from doing any activity. It isn't just simply rest. Look what it says at the end of verse 2. And keeps his hand from doing evil. The real Sabbath is keeping your hands from doing that which is wrong. The, The Lord reminds them to observe the Sabbath. And in the captivity, this is going to be of extreme importance. And it's in captivity that the synagogue worship is formed by the ancient Jews. It's during the time of the the captivity that the isolation and the circumstances are going to force them to live godly and live lives that are honoring and pleasing to the Lord. Keeping the Sabbath was the testimony that God's people worshiped the true and the living God. God established the Sabbath so that the people could rest their bodies and replenish their spirits. And the Lord made the observance of the Sabbath one of the Ten Commandments. So he says, don't defile God's day of rest by working and neglecting worship. The Lord would establish rest and worship for every generation. Well, what does that mean for you and for me? Well, guess what? In the New Testament, early believers gathered on the first day, on Sunday, in honor of Christ's resurrection. We, but listen carefully. We have more than a Sabbath day. We have a Sabbath Savior, a Sabbath God. Paul will later write to the Gentiles and he'll say, One man esteems one day above another. Some men esteem all days the same. Let each person be convinced in his own mind. Can you worship the Lord on Sunday? The answer is yes. Can you worship him on Monday? Oh, yeah. What about Tuesday? Uh Uh-huh. Wednesday? Uh Uh-huh. Thursday? Right. Friday? Sure. Saturday? Perfect. Sunday? Go for it. In 1 Corinthians 16.2, Paul wrote, On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. 
the saints in Corinth gathered on Sunday. In Acts chapter 20, verse 7, it says, Now on the first day of the week, that's Sunday, when the disciples came together to break bread, on Sunday they had a love feast and they had communion. Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them. Now here's what happened. They had a service on Sunday. They continued to preach. He continued to speak to them. And in Acts 20, it says, He spoke to them and he continued his message until midnight. He thought I was bad. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and, and in the book of Revelation, we see that John is in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. What you have to understand is that the true Sabbath rest for the Christian is a kind of busy rest. And you might think, well, what do you mean by that? You see, for the Christian, we don't just rest in the sense of cease activity we are busy we're busy with the truth we're busy with righteousness we're busy with justice and remember what i said what justice is it's giving to each that which they are due is that really work we are busy with worship we're busy with truth we're busy with joy you should set aside at least one day to be busy with truth and to be busy with joy, to be busy with justice, to be busy with righteousness. And look what it says in verse 3. Do not let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord has utterly separated me from his people, nor let the eunuch say, Here I am, a dry tree. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, the eunuch was drawn outside the circle. So who is invited? The foreigner. Everyone previously excluded, shut out, cut off, separated. Those who felt estranged from God's salvation and God's promises. It's almost impossible for you to understand what you're reading in Isaiah chapter 56. What I want you to do just very quickly is I want you to turn to the book of Acts. Chapter 8. And in Acts chapter 8, there's an amazing story. Some of you will remember it. In Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 26, it says, Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch. Now remember, a eunuch is a person who is unable to procreate. A eunuch was a eunuch either by virtue that they were physically emasculated, through accident, through birth, through design, for whatever reason, this person couldn't produce offspring. And the Bible says that this particular person had great authority under Candace, the queen of Ethiopia. Candace is a title like Pharaoh or like Caesar, who had charge of all of her treasury and came to Jerusalem to worship, was returning and sitting in his chariot. He was reading Isaiah the prophet, same book you're reading and we're studying. Then the Spirit said to Philip, Go near and overtake this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what it is that you're reading? And he said, How can I? Unless someone guide me. And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place in the scripture which he read was this. 
He was led as a, as a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before its shear is silent. So he opened not his mouth and his humiliation and justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation for his life is taken from the earth? He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 53, the passage that we went over about three weeks ago when we were going through Isaiah 53. The eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of some other man? The, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture preached Jesus to him. Isaiah 53, Jesus, the suffering servant. Jesus, the one who comes. Jesus, the one who dies for sin. Jesus, the one who rises from the dead. It says, now as they went down the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he he said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still. And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. Now think about this in verse 39. Now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more. And then he went on his way rejoicing. Now think about this. Black man, white man, go into the water. The black man comes up. The white man is gone. The black man says, Where is the white man? We have lost the white man. But he's been raptured. He's been taken away. But he rejoices. And as he rejoices, look what it says. Philip was found at Azotus. Now, you may not know this, but this is about 35 miles where in the spirit he was, he's literally transported to a different place. The reason why I'm reading this to you, because I'm going to suggest to you that after Philip was raptured away... The Ethiopian eunuch continues to read in Isaiah 54, in Isaiah 55, in Isaiah 56. And as he's reading and he comes to this chapter, because remember, when he went to purchase the scroll of Isaiah in Jerusalem, the eunuch would not have been allowed to go into the temple proper. He would have been restricted and prohibited. First... As a Gentile, he may have been able to approach the court of the Gentiles, but the moment that it was discovered that he was a eunuch, he would have been tossed out of the temple because of the book of Deuteronomy. Even though he is wealthy, powerful, they were finding all kinds of reasons, prohibitions, restrictions to not let him into the temple. In the ancient world, foreigners, Gentiles who were sick and tired of the cesspool of pagan idolatry could flee to God's people and God's covenants and join themselves with the people of Israel. And this is exactly what the eunuch was trying to do. But he wouldn't have been allowed. You know why this is important for each and every one of us? Have you ever read the Bible and you come across a particular verse and you notice that in the world in which you live, that if you were given justice, you read the parts in the Bible where it says, and this person shall be put to death. And if you do this, you shall be put to death. If you're an idolater, you shall be put to death. If you're an adulterer, you shall be put to death. If you are a eunuch, you are outside the assembly and you aren't allowed to fellowship because there's an imperfection that has disqualified you from fellowship. Well, guess what? For the eunuch reading Isaiah chapter 56, he realizes something. 
that just because he didn't have children didn't mean that he didn't have a future. That's what a eunuch is, by the way, remember? This is a person who can't have children. And in that particular culture and in that particular society, remember, if you're a woman and you're barren, if you can't have children, not only are you worthless in the present, you're going to be worthless in the future. And if you are a a eunuch, you have no progeny for the future. And so part of the promise that's given, just because you don't have a husband, just because you don't have a wife, just because you don't have children, just because you have a physical or emotional or circumstantial issue, doesn't mean that you're drawn outside the circle of God's family and God's love. God's acceptance of the foreigner was conditional. In order to be accepted by God, you had to commit yourself to the Lord. You had to love the Lord. You had to obey and serve the Lord. And then you would be accepted by the Lord. And it says, it says in chapter 56, do not let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, the Lord has utterly separated me from his people. Nor let the eunuch, think about the eunuch in Acts chapter 8, say, Here I am, a dry tree, for thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and holds fast my covenant, even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. How can you have an everlasting name that shall be cut, not be cut off if you aren't able to carry your name and your gene pool into the future? It's only if you have a real relationship with God in Christ. Because once you know Jesus, you get to live forever. That's the idea. The implication, if they've made no commitment, if they don't really love the Lord, if they don't really worship the Lord, if their their worship is false and empty and unacceptable, then they have no future. And in verse 4, again, For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenants. The assurance is given to those who are single, to those who are single by choice, to those who are forced to be single by genetics, by environment, by catastrophe, by surgery. They don't need to be drawn outside the circle. They get to be included. And what are the conditions? They keep God's Sabbaths and choose what pleases God. They hold fast to God's covenant. They find their rest in the Lord and they live righteously. In verse 5, even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. So a series of promises are extended to them. They'll be given a place before God, a better name than children. They'll be given an everlasting name. And in verse 6, and the sons of the foreigner, read Gentile. The sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord to be a servant. Everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant. And so the idea is the sons of the foreigner are Gentiles. They're formerly unbelievers. Again, they commit themselves to the Lord. They serve him. They worship him. They honor him. They embrace his commands and his covenants and the Sabbath. Well, what does that mean for the Christian? Remember what I already said. The Christian doesn't have so much of a Sabbath day, although they do. Whatever day you set aside to worship the Lord, you're entitled and privileged to do that. 
But you have a sovereign God. You have a, a Sabbath God. The New Testament invites you to rest in the Lord, to place your full and final rest in Jesus and in His covenant. And in verse 7, it says, Even them I will bring to my holy mountain. By the way, the holy mountain becomes a type and a picture of the Old Testament of the temple. And so when you hear the phrase or you see the phrase in the Bible, even them I will bring to my holy mountain, it becomes a biblical expression for I will bring them into my presence and they'll be accepted. Have you ever said in your life, I can't come to God and I can't be a Christian, I'm disqualified. I've done wicked things, stupid things, wrong things. Even according to the Bible, I am hopelessly excluded. Well, guess what? In the Messiah, in the suffering servant, you get to be included. And look what it says. They will be given joy in worship. Here's the idea. Your worship will be accepted by God. You get joy... Usually a worship experience is one of two things that happen to us. You come to church, you read your Bible, you sing the songs, and you leave empty, hurt, alone, troubled, depressed. And you might even say to yourself, feels like I wasn't even there. It feels like the songs just went in one ear and out the other, and I mouthed the words, but I didn't do it from the heart, and I, I heard the message, but the words just sort of went in one ear and out the other, and the pain and the pressure and the depression and, and, and the fear and the isolation, it's all still there. But it was never meant to be that. You are meant to experience joy. And do you know where joy comes from? Remember what the Bible says? The joy of the Lord is my strength. The Bible says that joy comes in the knowledge that God hears you and responds to you. He is aware of your tears and He is aware of your circumstances and He's aware of your past and He's completely aware of your present. And because of your past and His awareness of your present, again, He has a future for you. And it's a future of friendship and relationship with Him. And some of you are going to be familiar Look what it says, and make them joyful in in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Many of you know that verse, huh? That sounds familiar to me. Isn't Isn't that somewhere in the New Testament? Yeah, it's in Matthew chapter 21, verse 13. Do you remember when Jesus is is confronting the religious leaders and he's overturning the money changers and as he's overturning the money changers and he says to the religious leaders he said my house shall be called a house of prayer but you have made it what? a den of thieves he's quoting from this passage in Isaiah chapter 56 and I'm absolutely certain the Savior understood Isaiah chapter 56 because he wrote it 
Do you remember in the New Testament, in the temple, there were courts on the temple mount. There was the court of the Gentiles, and there was the court of the women, and then there was the court of the men, and then there was the court of the priests. And the court of the Gentiles was the place where they would exchange the goods and the services. You would bring money for offering, and you had to had to 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 exchange the money into into temple. Uh, they're called drachmas or drams. Um, they, they were shekel and shekelim. They were half shekels and shekels, and there was only certain kind of money that they would accept, and there were only certain kinds of sacrifices that they would accept. And so the Gentiles, like the Ethiopian eunuch, would come from all over the world, and they would come from all over the known world, and they would come to Jerusalem, and they would come to the temple. And as they would come to Jerusalem and they would come to the temple, they were hoping that they would get some representation of the true and the living God. they misrepresented the true and the living God. And that was part of Jesus' anger. By charging outrageous exchange rates and preying on the people instead of praying for the people, they were misrepresenting God to the nations. And here's the point. Both in Isaiah and in the New Testament, the church, the church, the place where you meet God, the place where you find God, the place where you learn about God, the church has to be a place that doesn't misrepresent God. It has to be a place where you can hear the truth and hear about hope and understand that no matter how wicked, no matter how sinful, no matter how wrong, no matter how distant you've been, it doesn't have to be that way. No matter how empty and joyless you, you've had in your life, that, that if ever there was a time for you to experience acceptance and joy, it's now. And that's the whole point of the book of Ephesians, that we, which we've already studied. Remember, Paul wrote in the opening chapter of Ephesians that you are chosen and adopted and accepted, not rejected. And look at verse 8. The Lord God. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel says, Yet I will gather to him others besides those who, who, who are gathered to him. It's, it's almost impossible for us to understand this. But the Jewish people were extremely prejudiced. They didn't even think it was possible that Gentiles could be saved. So when Jesus says in John 10:16, And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Salvation was never restricted to the Jew. It was always God's plan to bring a Savior who would be a Savior for all, for Jew and Gentile. So who are God's people? They're the ones who are empowered by hope in verse 1. They're marked by trust in verse 2. They're willing to include rather than exclude in verses 3 through 8. And so part of the point that Isaiah is making for the future that God is calling the church to care about what God cares about. And for you to act today with justice and righteousness so that you can be used by God in the future 
and the future is coming. And look at verse 9, the servant's message to the leader. Now the, the tone shifts. In verse 9 it says, All you beasts of the field come to devour. All you beasts in the forest. And you read verse 10, His watchmen are blind. They are all ignorant. They are all dumb dogs. And again, no offense to dogs. They cannot bark, sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. Yes, they are greedy dogs. You have to understand something. In the Hebrew culture, dogs were unclean animals. It wasn't the furry friend that you have at home. They ate garbage and dead flesh and drank from sewers. In verses 11 and 12, it says, Yes, they're greedy dogs which never have enough, and they are shepherds who cannot understand. They all look to their own way. Every one for his own gain from his own territory. So in verses 9 all the way down to verses 12, there's a warning, a message to the leaders of the children of Judah and Jerusalem. Again, just like in a movie, the focus now shifts. And for Isaiah, they are back in Jerusalem and Judah. And as they are back in Jerusalem and in Judah, a warning is being issued. The nation will be judged. And that's the meaning of being devoured by beasts. As you look at verse 9 and you go, All you beasts of the field come to devour. All you beasts in the forest. Isaiah is giving a metaphor for the surrounding countries, particularly Babylon, will come out of the wilderness and devour the children of Judah and Jerusalem. The nation will be judged. And the way that the nation will be judged is by these devouring beasts, which become a, a metaphor for the invaders. And then he gives a list of the reasons why they're going to be judged. Number one, because the leaders are ignorant and blind watchmen. So he basically says, you know what? The religious leaders and the priests that God has set over you, they're acting like there's nothing wrong and there's something terribly wrong. And then, number two, the leaders are sleeping dogs who fail to warn the people. If a dog had any function in the ancient world at all, it should have been as an organic burglar alarm. Do you have a dog? Some of you have dogs. If someone shows up on your doorstep and you have a dog inside of the house, what does the dog do? What, what does that mean? There's somebody here. Even the most foolish teacher should have been able to warn the people. And so if you come to church week after week as you've been listening in the book of Isaiah and you come here on Sunday mornings and you go, Gina seems to uh, warn us a lot. Yeah, but here's the warning. Sin has consequences. So please don't sin. Righteousness and obedience has consequences. So please exercise righteousness and obedience. Do righteousness and justice. Exercise a willingness to act towards each other, giving you exactly what is due. But the leaders were sleeping dogs. They failed to warn the people. The leaders are greedy dogs who are self-centered. In other words, the religious leaders began to care more about what the people could provide for them 
instead of what they could provide for the people. You know what every pastor's responsibility is? Without exception. Without exception. Every pastor's responsibility is to prepare you for heaven. That's what Paul wrote in Romans. When he envisioned himself and his high priestly duty, he described his duty as a priest who is preparing all of the people that he comes in contact with for the moment that they'll meet Jesus. All of his life, all of his ministry, all of his words, all of his admonitions, all of the promises, all of the prophecies, everything that you read in the New Testament that Paul wrote was intended to help you, to minister to you, to encourage you, to prepare you for the moment that you'll meet Jesus. And by the way, every single person who is listening to my voice, whether in the sanctuary or on the tape, every single person without exception will one day meet Jesus. And you will meet him as a saved person or you will meet him as an unsaved person. You will meet him as a prepared person or you will meet him as an unprepared person. The leaders were shepherds who lacked discernment. They were ignorant of the people's welfare. They were materialistic. They were indulgent. They were drunks. Look what it says. Yes, they're greedy dogs in verse 11 and 12, which never have enough. And they are shepherds who cannot understand. They don't have discernment. They all look to their own way. And so again, earlier, when it talks... When you come to the end of the verse, in verse 12, where it says, Come, says one, I'll bring wine, and we will fill ourselves with intoxicating drink. Tomorrow will be as today and much more abundant. Here's the idea. Nothing's changed, so let's have a drink. Hey, all we have is today. So let's drink what we've got. The religious leaders received a stern rebuke. They were fleecing the flock instead of feeding the flock. And by the way, the warning will continue in verse 57. So what do we take from this? Who can come? All can come. All who feel overlooked. Everyone who feels left out. The foreigner the person who doesn't have a family or what seems like a future, the unbeliever, the backslider, the able, the disabled, the Jew, the Gentile. The invitation is extended. Everyone can come to God in the Messiah. They can come if they will repent. They can come if they'll come to Jesus. They can come if they will commit their lives to the Lord. They will come and they will be included and not excluded. They won't be shut out. They won't be separated. They won't be left behind. In Romans 10.13, Paul wrote, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
my job is to prepare you for meeting the Lord. And you will be prepared. Unless you come to the Lord on on any other basis other than that which He has ascribed Himself. Remember what Jesus said, Come to Me, all who labor and heavy laden. Jesus said to the religious leaders, Believe in Me. The New Testament writers constantly encourage us to place our full, final, complete confidence on the Savior. And remember, 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 if you forget anything else in this message, remember this part. Isaiah is inviting you to powerfully think about the future and your place in God's future. And your place in God's future will be in direct proportion to your faithfulness in the circumstance that you find yourself in today. You're praying, loving, serving, in humility and righteousness and joy serving the Lord Jesus. And guess what? Now you have a powerful opportunity to be used by God in whatever circumstance He places you in. The future's coming. The future's coming. The future will be here. Jesus will come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth. Lord, it seems to me there's a reason why he taught us to pray that. The future is coming. The kingdom is coming. Jesus is coming. Salvation has come. And judgment is coming. Lord, The writer of Isaiah warns the people that you're about to intervene. That an intervention is going to take place and the whole world is going to be different as a result. And Lord, I know that for each and every one of us, sometimes we find ourselves where an intervention is taking place. And the whole world is going to be different. Lord, we pray that as men and women of God and men and women who have given their hearts and their lives and their love and their loyalty to Jesus. That, Lord, we would would find ourselves in a place of usefulness and faithfulness, of humility and righteousness and a willingness to love and serve and extend to one another grace, mercy, respect, dignity. Knowing, Lord, that you have a plan and you want to use us. You want to prepare us for the plan that you have for us. And so, again, Lord, I pray for each and every person who's listening to my voice, Lord. If, they've, if they're playing games, Lord, I pray that they would turn. And just like John the Baptist of old, that they would repent. That they would exercise righteousness. That they would live today as if it's the last day. And that this, this is the time that we will stand before you and give an account of our life. Lord, we pray that we would be found faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.
Jesus' name.